we have a great privilege this morning in that we uh, get to, to analyze and look at and take up and learn from one of the, the most beloved passages in all of the Bible, John 3.15 and then 16 and following. And it's uh, a series of verses that are probably some of the most well-known words in the English language. We have all heard John 3.16 over and over and over, and it is an immense gift. It's a consolidated, intensified, distilled communication of the Christian gospel. It's worth memorizing and holding dear in your heart. But I I have heard from people that uh, oftentimes the the familiarity of this verse sometimes uh, makes it harder to, to grasp hold of. It's, it's become sort of too well known for us to really hit home into the heart at times. You know, we've heard it so many times at summer camps and at uh, revival preachers and, uh, and everything in between. It's very well known. But I've wondered if our inability to digest the power of this passage has less to do with its familiarity and more to do with that it brings up the topic of eternal life. I have a hunch that people are somewhat uncomfortable with the idea of eternal life. I think folks have an unexpressed kind of awkwardness with it. I would even say that some people might not really even want eternal life anymore. What do we do with it? I could see someone saying, We just go on vacations endlessly. What is the power of everlasting life? Or here's another way to put it. Do you love your life? Have you ever thought about that? Do you like your life? Have you ever sort of reflected on it in that way? I bet that you have, we have complex answers to that question. And it probably depends on the season of life that we inhabit and uh, our emotional state of the day. And I think it's strange, though, that our lives are in, we have more control over our lives than ever, and yet I'm not fully convinced at all that this has given us a deeper affection for life itself. Of course, the promise of the Christian gospel is that if we believe that Christ is the Son of God, we receive everlasting life, as the older translations say it. And the powerful byproduct of this belief is that we also I think, gain a deeper love for life itself. Because you realize the mechanism of our salvation is that our lives become united to the life of the resurrected one. And so, in some mysterious way that I don't fully understand, all of the details of your life suddenly become windows or icons into the glory of God himself. He transforms our lives. And thereby we get to view our lives with an even deeper love and affection. Our lives become windows into his own life. And I think this pans out for us personally. I know in my own life, all of my most vivid memories of becoming a Christian, later in high school and then early on in college, they all involved recognizing the gift of life itself. I mean, I can think of particular memories Specific road trips that I took with my first very good friends. Or one particular camping trip with my dad. Or countless conversations I had with my mom on our back porch in the home that I grew up in. 
As I became a Christian, I recognized my brokenness more and more. I still do. But even more than that, I began to love the life that I'd been given. And I think people wrongly believe that Christianity is exclusively about forsaking life. And there are verses that point to this in seasons in life in which an attitude as such is appropriate. But let us not forget that right here in John 3.16, the most famous passage in all of the Bible, it's all about everlasting life. It says it in John 3.15, it says it in John 3.16. And I don't think Jesus is speaking in any sort of metaphorical way here. We were built for everlasting life. This, of course, has been Bishop Tom Wright's famous recovery. He is uh, beloved by many in this congregation. He's a uh, now world-renowned New Testament scholar. He writes in one of his more popular books, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. He then says, it's why we pray thy kingdom come. Because the resurrection isn't about the abandonment of our lives and the goods that we find in them, but it is a continuation of the things that we love the most. And it means that the the meals and the relationships and the colors and the beauty, it all continues because it belongs in the kingdom of God. And so I, for one, think that Bishop Wright is very correct on a basic level. Jesus even says as much later on in the Gospel of John, he says, I come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The Christian Gospel is about more life, fuller life, richer life, everlasting life. But I do think if we are honest... There is a struggle that is attached to this truth. It's one that I have certainly felt. The promise of everlasting life sometimes is unremarkable to many of us if we've forgotten to even care much about life in the first place. Verse 19 of our gospel reading says, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were wicked. And I know that Jesus' words sound pretty harsh here, but what I think he means is that people didn't recognize the Messiah not because they're just stupid or unreflective. They don't recognize the Messiah because they're caught up in sin. And the work of sin is that it, 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 it disenables, it disables us to be sensitive to goodness itself. Let me rephrase that. Sin desensitizes us to the things that matter most. And this makes perfect sense in my mind. Because if you look in the Christian tradition, one of the more uh, typical ways that you see sin defined is that it's a a turning towards nothingness. It's a, a kind of idolatry, right? So when we have an idol, we worship an image, but the image is not the real thing. And in that way, it's kind of a turning toward nothingness itself. It's almost like an act of uncreating And I'm not trying to be abstract in any of this. I'm just trying to show you that the problem of sin isn't that it makes us too passionate or too infatuated with life. It's that it dulls our affections entirely. And it distracts us from seeing the world as this brilliant icon into God's own life. It's kind of like preferring to watch a documentary about the Smoky Mountains when you're already at a cabin in the Smokies. Or maybe it's a little like 
uh, going to the grocery store and picking up a frozen pizza when you're on vacation in Tuscany. And those are silly examples, I realize. But what about this one? It's like believing that you have to make yourself important rather than trusting that your heavenly father loves you and has made you. And I think that all of this is vital to realize in Lent because the whole exercise of confessing our sins doesn't end with us hating our lives. In fact, it is the very opposite. True Christian repentance leads to a deeper affection for life itself because it enables us to see the gifts that God has given us. I think of it a little bit like this. Do you all remember that movie from the 90s about Peter Pan, Hook? Robin Williams played Peter Pan. Remember, the the story was all about how Peter had grown up and he'd forgotten that he was Peter Pan. And he had become sort of a, a jaded attorney who was overworked and didn't spend enough time with his kids. And that way it was sort of predictable. But there's one major problem in the movie. The big problem, the problem is, is that uh, in order for Peter to save his kids, been stolen by Captain Hook, is he has to remember that he's Peter Pan. And he does, and he's, with the help of the lost boys, he's reminded that he's Peter Pan. He learns to fight and to fly. And when he goes to win back his kids from Captain Hook, it's not just that he saves their lives, but there's this moment at the very end where his son Jack is standing behind, beside him And Captain Hook is now uh, gone. And Jack realizes that his hero is his dad. So the whole story is really about the relationship. He realizes he'd neglected the relationship with his kids the whole time. And so all the adventure and all the battle was really about realizing, not that he was Peter Pan, but that he had these children who he loved and were precious. I know that's a silly example, but I think that's what sin does to us. It makes us idolize things of lesser importance and forget about the things that matter the most to us. And I do think that those idols could be anything for you. You can reduce your life to career goals or coping strategies or self-expression or truly anything, literally. Anything can become an idol in your heart. But whatever it is, if it's a true idol, it means it will dull your senses to the gifts that God gives you right in front of your eyes. And I think this is what our epistle reading that we just heard means when Paul says, even when we were dead through our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Alive. Christianity is about being made alive. See, faith in the God of the Bible awakens your senses to see things that you love as windows into this everlasting life with the one who made you. And if you miss those things, if you miss them entirely, then you'll never even dream of wanting everlasting life. You won't want it. And isn't that a bizarre irony that when we fixate on our idols, it makes us love the world even less? I think this is just why Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because when we focus on the idols of our lives rather than the true God-given goods that we find in our own homes and neighborhoods, we lose any love for our own lives. And I think that the miraculously, 
this worldly work of the gospel is that when we believe in the Son of God crucified, you suddenly get this incredible glimpse into how much your life is actually worth. Here's what I mean. I just read last week this article published in The Atlantic. It was written by a a famous uh, pastor, Tim Keller. He's a um, very public thinker at this point. He's one of the more prominent Christian thinkers living right now. And he he wrote this piece for The uh, Atlantic reflecting on how, on his own mortality. Just this year he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which I'm told has kind of a, a grim outcome. And so he wrote this article in, in The Atlantic about wrestling with his own death. And he writes this, To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I, that's his wife, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, from sun on the water and flowers in the vase, to our own embraces, sex, and conversation, bring more joy than ever. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. And then he closes with this. I can sincerely say, without any sentimentality or exaggeration, that I have never been happier in my life. That I have never had more days filled with comfort. Isn't that a profound thing? for someone to say, a very intelligent man at the end of his days, I've never been happier in my life. So I'd like to ask you, when will you be able to say that about your life? At what point will you be able to say, I have never been happier in my life? I think the only way that you can say that is just like John 3 says, You look to the cross and you see precisely what God says about your life. Because the cross has all kinds of things. It says things about sin. It says things about atonement. It says things about the power of God. It says things about judgment. But do not forget, the cross guarantees that no matter what you think about your own life, God thinks that it is good enough for him to die for. Your life, whatever you think about it, let me say that again is good enough for God to die for. This Lent, we have emphasized the challenge to draw near to God again and again with our own sins. This should be a powerful impulse in our lives to bear whatever we are, whatever we feel, whatever sins we struggle with. God knows them, and he loves you, and he wants to draw you into deeper relationship with him. And if you want to get a glimpse of what this looks like, I think just to close, that it looks a little bit like the life of Nicodemus. People forget that John 3.16 is not said in front of some enormous crowd. Jesus isn't speaking on, this isn't the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this takes place alone at night with Nicodemus, a man that we know very little about. He doesn't show up that much throughout the rest of the gospel. And in fact, the the last time we see Nicodemus is when Jesus has died 
And they go to find him a burial space. And Nicodemus shows up with costly ointments and spices to embalm the body of the Messiah. And I think the thing that we should take away from this, the suggestion I have for you, what are the costly items in your life? What are the spices? What are the ointments? What are the good things of value that you hold on to and love? Reflect on what those are and realize what they're made for. Service to God the Father. Embalming the body of the Son. This Lent, reflect on what you can offer to God and reflect on what he has offered for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.